Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Fine, 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 Gavin. I admit Jack the Ripper, far more impressive serial killer. But hey, at least we caught ours. Yes. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. New York City. And you allowed yourself to be terrorized by a chubby loser named David. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 370, the Wicked King Wicker edition of the show, and it's part one of the Summer of Sam, where we talk about the lamest serial killer of them all, the Son of Sam. Stay tuned. What the Hell We Think Podcast is brought to you by Dave's. They call us Dave for a reason. Do you know a guy named Dave? Have you met a guy named Dave? If you have, then you know that Dave's are different. Dave's are cool dudes, fun to hang out with, and can probably mix a mean cocktail. Having a party this summer? Invite a Dave over and turn him loose to watch the fun begin. Having a child and want them to be cool as fuck? Name them Dave. Boy, girl, non-binary, it doesn't matter when they're Dave. They will be awesome. Dave's, just someone you want to hang out with. Warning, do not confuse Dave's with David's. David's are uptight and utterly unfun. Learn the difference between Dave's and David's by asking any Dave, and they'll explain in detail. Do you feel personally threatened by the 44 caliber killer because you have long, dark hair? Yes, I do. <laughs> Has his existence in any way interfered with your movements at night? Yes, I stay in. I you didn't stay in in the past? No. I don't feel free to go out to walk the streets or go out at all. Excuse me, I'm Jeff Kamen from Channel 11 News. Do you feel personally threatened by the 44 caliber killer because you have long brown hair? No, not at all. Uh-uh. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go out in the car. I'm afraid to do anything. Never know where he's going to be. Have you ever thought of cutting your hair or wearing it up because of this guy? No. Did you ever think of cutting your hair because of him? Uh... No, I never thought of going to that extent. Of it. Just, uh, I just don't want to be recognized. I thought of maybe dyeing it a little redder or something, really. When you get well, people look, cutting look. their hair, when you get people dyeing their hair, when you get people, when you get my wife who was scared to even walk the street, when you get me who was scared to walk the street, for God's sake. We used to stay in front of my house and park, you know, and kiss goodnight, but we can't do that no more. Just go right in. You have to be careful. You have to watch where you go now, you know, how late you stay out and... Have you restricted you your, have you restricted your own movements? Yeah. You don't go out as much as you used to? No. And I'm always with somebody, you know. That I you know, I know I'm gonna be taken right home or whatever, you know. What about your friends? Are they doing the same thing? Yes. <laughs> Even when they don't have long hair. You know, same thing. It scares you. I know what it is to walk around in my childhood without any problems. 
happy-go-lucky and go where I want, but no longer like that. You have to look over your shoulder, and I find people, when you're walking, people just look over their shoulder. Small towns in rural southeastern Tennessee do not have serial killers. If someone murders you in a small town, you knew them, all right? My daddy. Well, it could be your dad, but your uncle, but more likely it's a husband or a brother-in-law or a drinking buddy. It's, what I'm saying is murder in small towns is fucking personal. Because you're an asshole. Or Jim Bob just got drunk and shot you or his wife because you were fucking his wife. I mean, it, it could work out like that, but chances are someone was being an asshole. So, you know, I missed most of the 70s serial murder hysteria as a kid. No one was warning chubby ginger boys to stay out of panel vans and not go home with good-looking strange young men at bars that catered to... People who like to go home with good-looking, strange young men. That was until 1979. When someone in Atlanta just started killing kids all over the fucking city. I mean, I was just old enough by then to pay attention to the nightly news. And, and naturally, I had some questions. Are we safe? And that's when my grandfather sat me down and explained to me that Atlanta was a long way from Etowah and I didn't have anything to worry about because Etowah was a safe place where the only person who might kill you was your husband or your father-in-law in a rundown trailer house on the east side of railroad, railroad tracks in town. And since I was 10 years old, that really wasn't a problem for me. And besides, he said, whomever was killing those kids in Atlanta was only killing little African-American boys. Is that what he said? Honest? Um, I mean, he didn't use those exact words, but th that was the gist of the content. What word did he use? I I'm not really sure I remember all these years. And look, the exact wording isn't important. Suffice to say that he told me that I had nothing to worry about because um, I, uh, I wasn't an African-American boy. Honey, he probably uses the N word. Again, not important. Not, not important after all this time. Can, can, we just, can we just move on now? What I'm trying to say without saying that my family might have used an improper descriptor of race is that Wayne Williams in Atlanta was when I first learned about serial killers. And from that day forward, I've always had a morbid fascination for them. Remember the racist grandpa? Look, it was 1979 and it was the South, of course he was. Which is why we now turn to the Summer of Sam which it did 45 years ago the week this podcast is released. Live through the summer of Sam. We've spent the last two weeks giving you what the kids like to call the vibe of New York City in the mid-70s. And if I had to sum it up, I would say the vibe was... Uh, Tense? Yeah, tense. If you haven't listened to those episodes, you don't strictly need to, but we'll help you get a feel for the city as the summer of Sam gripped it. If you don't go back and listen to them, you can just go with tense. This week, we're going to focus on the murders, the investigation, and how they impacted the city. Next week, we'll talk about the fat loser that did them. So, without further ado, let's go back to 1976. July of 1976 marked the bicentennial of this here United States of America, and America was ready to celebrate because we had a goddamn new quarter. I will start you off with this bicentennial quarter. Honestly, as a seven-year-old, the quarter was just about the most awesome thing ever because the quarter was the largest denomination of money I routinely had in my hands. Sure, the front side was some boring-ass George Washington, but the back, the back had that dude laying down sick beats on his drum. Fuck Yeah. Sorry. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, 1976. We were in the middle of a presidential election between Gerald. It was my understanding that there would be no math. Ford and... Oh, my God. Jimmy Carter. 
NASA had unveiled a weird-ass new logo and was slapping it on everything, including all of its press about this new thing they had called a space shuttle, which didn't debut until September, but every nerdy kid in America was stoked because it was... It is the Enterprise. In New York City, there was a grand parade of sailing ships featuring tall ships from around the world. The tall ships capturing their grace and power. Along with a flotilla of naval vessels from just about every country that we didn't actively hate, or actively hated us. I hear some of you asking, you know who you are. Was there a lot of fucking going on around all those sailors being in town to which the answer is obviously, Hey everybody, we're all gonna get laid. There were fireworks, parades, the Queen of England came to visit her old colony just to show us there were no hard feelings and for about two weeks America was able to forget how fucked up everything was with the economy and everything and just how things just sucked a fat turd everywhere for pretty much everyone except of course for the rich and they were doing great Bravo, Reagan. no 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 that didn't have anything to do but soon once the parties were over america and new york settled back down to the long slow sullen summer of 1976 by late July, America was dancing to the number one hit from the Manhattans. And since this is our last day together, I want to hold you just one more time. When you turn and walk away, don't look back. I want to remember you just like this. Let's just kiss and say goodbye. Shaking their booties in the disco and snorting their blow in the bathrooms. In theaters, a little story about the son of the devil was ensuring your humble pod host would have nightmares about heads tumbling down a pane of glass for about a month. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, Something terrible happened. I was seven. What the hell was I doing watching this fucking movie? What was wrong with the adults in the 70s that made them think a seven-year-old should be watching some dude get his head chopped off by a sheet of glass and then the head goes bouncing along the pane of glass until it shatters and the head drops to the ground? Or for that matter, seeing people get eaten by sharks or some flying metal ball with spikes in it slammed into some dude's forehead? I was seven! If you want to know why I'm the way I am now, I learned it from watching movies with you. Sorry. On television, Richie, Potsy, Ralph, and the Fonz made America nostalgic for the good old days before black people got all those civil rights. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle hops, ready to race to you. Go look for a black person in happy days. They're harder to find than Richie's older brother, Chuck, after season one. But at least we had Lee Majors running in slow motion and fighting Bigfoot. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better. Stronger.
25 years later, every Gen X dude is going right now. Last and most importantly for the moms across America, Ryan's Hope debuted July 7th in ABC's Daytime Soap lineup. which is everyone, Ryan's hope revolved around the trials and tribulations of a large Irish-American family in Washington Heights of New York City, which I got some news for you. In 1975, was not Irish. But I think we all know that Rodriguez's hope just wasn't going to fly at the time. And finally, in the world of sports, the 21st Olympiad was in Montreal, Canada, for some reason. Take off, eh? Get off! Where the Soviet Union and East Germany would soundly trash the West in medals, taking home 49 and 40 respectively to the U.S.'s paltry 34. You're weak, weak! This was also the year that future Kardashian hanger-on and sad little attention seeker Caitlyn Nay Bruce Jenner won gold in the triathlon, pentathlon, decathlon. I don't know what the fuck. He, he, he won some bunch of gold medals and went on to adorn Wheaties boxes across the nation, the last notable thing she ever did. Yeah, I know I screwed up all the pronouns in there, but it's Caitlyn Jenner, for God's sakes. I don't care. Thus was the state of New York City and the nation on Thursday, July 29th, 1976. Just after midnight, Jody Valenti and her friend Donna Loria were parked in front of an apartment building at 2860 Bury Avenue in the Westchester Heights section of the Bronx in Valenti's 1974 blue two-tone Oldsmobile Cutlass. The two had been out to the disco that night and Valenti was dropping Loria off at home, but before they went inside, they sat and talked for a while, talking about whatever young women talked about in 1976. Warren Beatty, John Travolta. That's when they saw a hulking figure. Man, was he fat. So, so fat. In a striped shirt approaching their car. Donna Loria turned to Jody and asked if maybe she knew the lumbering dipshit approaching their car in the middle of the night. But before Jody could tell her that she didn't know anyone that looked like a chunky goober, said chunky goober produced a pistol and fired four shots into the car through the window. One of the bullets struck Loria in the neck, killing her instantly, and another struck Valenti in the thigh. Valenti said that's when the stranger waddled off in the night, presumably breathing heavily from the exertion. But I couldn't confirm any of that through original sources. Get off the fat jokes! Get off fat! Get off fat! Sorry, yeah, I know. You know what? Berkowitz wasn't even that fat. He just, he just looked like he ought to be. Valente was able to provide a vague description of the shooter, white, 30-ish, curly hair, blue-striped shirt, that was all. The Loria murder didn't even attract much attention in July of 1976. The Daily News wrote a brief article the following day, and honestly, the only reason they wrote that was Donna Loria's uncle was a cop, and the Daily News liked to keep cops sweet on them since cops leaked information to the news. This is because in 1976, there were 1,622 murders in New York City, and even when the victims were young white girls with cop uncles, Without any kind of leads in the case, there was there was never going to grab the attention of the city and barely the attention of the detectives that were assigned to solve it. 
They pulled some slugs on the car, did rudimentary ballistics. It was rudimentary even for the time. Discovering that they were so from a 44 caliber handgun, and that was about all. The Loria case went on to a pile of unsolved murders in the city and probably would have remained there if not for the other murders. Speaking of which, Saturday, October 23rd, 1976, Flushing, Queens. 20-year-old Carl De Niro and 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan had met earlier that night at a local bar. The two got in De Niro's red VW Beetle and drove to a nearby park so they could talk. Just a couple of kids naked. Just as things were starting to heat up, the window of the Beetle exploded in a shower of glass. Keenan, who was behind the wheel, started the car and the two bolted back to the bar they had just left and that's when DeNaro noticed that his shirt was soaked in blood. He had been shot in the head. Keenan was unharmed. The cops didn't make much out of the incident. Indeed, <laughs> they rather suspected that DeNaro wasn't being entirely honest about the incident. We know you're lying. Because they thought the two were involved in a drug deal that had gone bad. Still, they did pull slugs from the car, and again, it was a 44 caliber. It would be months before the DeNaro and Keenan incidents were connected to the work of what would soon be called the 44 caliber killer. Saturday, November 27th, 1976, 16-year-old Donna DeMassi and 18-year-old Joni Lomino were talking on the stoop of Lomino's family home at 262nd Street in Floral Park, Queens. They saw a dumpy man in military fatigues walking on the other side of the street, who, when he saw them, stopped and approached them. As he crossed the street, he called out, Girls, can you tell me how to get to... And then pulled the pistol from his waistband. Both girls bolted for the door of Lomino's home, but the gunman fired five shot, shots, missing three times. And the other two found Damasi, who was grazed in the neck, and struck Lomino in the spine. Lomino was co confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. 44 caliber slugs were recorded when were pulled from the scene, and, according to sources, a connection to Loria's murder was briefly considered but abandoned because the suspect descriptions did not match. I see the foreshadowing that precedes every moment of every day. You can't really blame the NYPD. Sure, they had three separate shootings, six victims, one death, and a bunch of bullets from the same kind of gun, but the 44 was a very common gun back in the 70s, largely because of... Being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Dirty Harry made every limp dick in the land grab one so they could feel like a man. There were plenty of 44 slugs and plenty of bodies in America, kind of like 223s today. I do love America. But this was across, these incidents were across two boroughs, many different precincts, and there were 1,600 plus murders in New York City. So spotting that pattern in 1976, when everything was on paper and done by landline, there wasn't even really a fax machine, that wasn't going to happen. Taking the holiday off, our friend doesn't return to his hunt until Sunday, July 30th, 1977. Christine Freund and her fiancé, John Deal, had just enjoyed an evening showing of Rocky. His name is Sylvester Stallone. He's the star of a new film called Rocky. He's been described as tough, handsome, talented, sexy, sensitive, dynamic, brilliant. 
even compared to Nicholson, De Niro, and Brando, but he is Rocky. You just know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the copy for that ad. Anyway, Freund and Deal were sitting in John's car when someone opened fire with a pistol. The Daily News takes it from here in a 1977 story, quote, an attractive 26-year-old secretary who was sitting with her boyfriend in his car in Forest Hills, Queens, was fatally wounded yesterday when an unknown assailant crept up and fired three shots through the window at close range. Two of the bullets ripped into Christine Freund of 5918 Linden Street, Widgwood, Queens. She was struck once in the side of the head and once in the shoulder. The third bullet ricocheted off the, wind off the windshield. Her friend John Deal was not hurt. Police said there was no apparent motive for the slaying. However, the homicide detectives recalled three other similar instances in re recent months in Flora Park, Flushing, and the Bronx involving a gunman who approached the car and fired shots through the window, unquote. Finally. At last, the cops were putting together the pieces and thinking just maybe there was a pattern here that they might want to examine, you know, just for funsies. No, they didn't do that. You see, they were still considering all these shootings as done by multiple suspects. Again, why? Because all the suspect descriptions, which I remind you are notoriously unreliable, didn't match up. Coincidence? I don't think so. Again, that's, that's foreshadowing for next week. So jot that down in your show journals, which I know all of you keep religiously while we're listening to the show. <laughs> I'm sorry, even I don't buy that. Which brings us to Tuesday, March 8, 1977. It's a new twist in our saga because it was a Tuesday. 19-year-old Virginia Verkeshian, a Columbia University grad, was heading to the home she shared with her parents and siblings in the Forest Hill Garden section of Queens. She stepped off the train to take a short walk to her home in Exeter Street at around 7.30 p.m. As she turned the corner onto a quiet section of the neighborhood, she was shot in the face point blank. None of her belongings were disturbed, and the witnesses reported seeing a white dude around 18, maybe 5 foot 9, running away from the scene. Verkashian was killed approximately 100 yards from where Christine Freund was killed a little over a month earlier, but still, police didn't make the connection between the deaths despite the ballistic evidence. The newspapers, however, were running with the shootings being linked. Operating off tips from inside the NYPD, they had taken the information and began putting two and two together, the locations, the similarity in victims, and most of all, the same weapon, a Charter Arms Bulldog 44 caliber, and that's why they gave him the name, the 44 caliber killer. Oh yeah, we're bringing dramatic gopher back big time, baby. Things would change, however, on April 17th, 1977 quoting from an article in the daily news from that same day quote the 44 caliber killer struck again early went yesterday murdering an 18 year old co-ed and fatally wounding her 20 year old boyfriend as they sat parked in his car a block from her bronx home striking without warning or apparent motive the killer used the same powerful revolver as for at least the fourth similar murder in eight months police ballistic experts said once again, as in attacks in the Bronx and Queens, the killer's apparent target was a young woman with shoulder-length brown hair. But yesterday, police said a note from the murderer was found near the car. Detectives would not reveal its contents, nor would they say what bearing the note had on the case, unquote. The note would change everything. 
First of all, it confirmed that one person was doing all of these murders. Sure, Dave. Sounds great. Stop getting ahead of me here, okay? Second, this note would explain that 44 caliber killer isn't the preferred nomenclature. Son of Sam, please. And finally, I get to challenge myself by reading to you the letter the Son of Sam left for Captain Joseph Borelli, the detective in charge of the newly formed task force in looking into the 44 caliber killings and not do Henry Zabrowski's Berkowitz from last podcast on the left. And trust me, pod friends, this is going to be hard. Yeah, Mr. Borelli. I'm deeply hating. Are you calling me a Lehman hater? I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Sam. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention, police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill. Or else keep out of my way or you will die. Baba Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He's had too many heart attacks. Ooh, me hoot. It hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see you soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game. Tasty meat, the women of queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill no more. No, sir, no more. But I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you. I don't want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and the next. And for now, I say goodbye. Good night. Police. Let me leave you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interrogated as bang, bang. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. He seems nice. Now, the full contents of the Borelli letter weren't released until much later. But snippets dribbled out. And particularly the name Son of Sam. And that captivated the imaginations of the public helped along by the imaginations of the tabloid writers. Jimmy Breslin, an iconic daily news columnist, began writing about the killings on the regular, and he was very well connected with law enforcement and was able to dredge out almost all of the Breslin letter before it was ever fully released. And it's most likely the reason why Jimmy Breslin received his own missive from the killer in the form of a letter on May 30th, 1977. The Breslin letter, which was published in the Daily News in a slightly redacted form, broke on the city of New York and kicked off what would come to be called the Summer of Sam. Ah, ah, He said it! He said it! The letter, addressed to Breslin at the news, had this written on the envelope. Blood, family, and darkness, and death, absolute depravity, 44. And reads in full, quote, Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up the delicacies when they are washed away by the sleeper trucks. 
Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in those cracks and feed on the dried blood of the dead that has seeped into those cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want you to know that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, I don't think that just because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, no, rather I'm still here like a, like a spirit. Roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps uh, we'll be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. If I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I'll say, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember, Miss Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44, here are some names to help you along forward in the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicca. The 22 Disciples of Hell. John Wheaties, rapist and suffocators of young girls. P.S. J.B. inform other detectives working on the slain to remain. P.S. J.B. inform other detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all of you guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Unquote. But don't go to any more trouble on my account. Now look, I'm going to admit... That that voice has it's problematic, but it's much closer to what Berkowitz actually sounded like than all the documentary voiceover artists would give him this dark, spooky tin timber that just. And then you shall see my handiwork at the next job. <laughs> Berkowitz was a dweeby-ass Jewish kid from the Bronx. That's just what he sounded like. I'm not going to apologize for that. When this letter was published in the Daily News, New York City lost its fucking mind. Quoting from allthatsinteresting.com, quote, New York City had gone into a kind of panicked lockdown. For the most part, the killings appeared totally random, save for the fact that they all occurred at night and six of the eight attacks involved couples sitting in parked cars. Several of the victims, including one man, had long, dark hair. Consequently, women across New York City began to dye their hair or buy wigs. The subsequent search for so-called Son of Sam was the largest manhunt in New York City at the time, unquote. And cops received thousands of tips and all of them were bad. 
People formed vigilante mobs to protect their neighborhoods. Suspicious characters were at best confronted and chased out of the area. At worst, they had the shit beat out of them. The tabloids were running wild. The Post, which was recently acquired by Rupert Murdoch, was determined to scoop the daily news and did some super shitty stuff to get stories, like impersonating a grief counselor to get near a grieving family of a victim. Clubs were closed. People already scared to death by the ongoing crime wave began bunkering inside their homes. Women's changed their appearance, and you would think that people would stop going to lovers' lanes and makeout spots since those were widely rumored to be Sam's hunting grounds. But people, being people and being horny, did not. On June 26, 1977, Judy Placidio and Sal Lupo were sitting in a car outside a disco in Bayside, Queens. According to the Daily News, quote, about 3 a.m., Lupo asked Ralph Sassente, the disco bouncer, if he could borrow Sassente's maroon 1972 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Sassente gave him the keys. Judy and Lupo left the disco at about 3.10, walked to the car, parked about a block away on 211th Street between 45th Road and 45th Drive. They got into the car. They were sitting in the front seat, talking and smoking cigarettes for six to eight minutes, Detective Sergeant Edward Dahlum said later. The assailant came up on the passenger side, fired one shot through the passenger window, then three more in rapid succession, unquote. Sam fled into the night, and the two would survive their injuries. The cops had finally pieced everything together, and over 300 of them were now working the case. And as the anniversary of Sam's first murder approached, the tabloids and the cops were all predicting he would strike that very night and stake out somewhere set up in all the spots in Queens and the Bronx they thought Sam might hit. That night, July 29th, passed without incident, and Sam was waiting. He would not wait long because on July 31st, 1977, Robert Violante and Stacy Moskowitz were parked after their first date near a park in Brooklyn, a presumably safe place since Sam had never ventured into the borough, and... Stacy was a blonde. Sam, after all, only stalked girls with long, dark hair. They assumed they would be safe. They were wrong. While sitting on the swings in the park, they spotted a strange man lurking in the shadows, and Stacy suggested they go back to Volante's car. She wanted them to leave right away, but he convinced her to chat for another few minutes when the car glass suddenly exploded as the son of Sam opened fire on the two. Volante was struck in the head and blinded by the wound, and Moskowitz was struck and died two days later in the hospital. She would be the last victim of the son of Sam. And that is where we will pick up next week with part two of the Summer of Sam, the arrest, the trial, and other theories about the killings that gripped New York City. Whew. This was a long one, but I want to keep all the murders together in one show and keep it all down to the just the facts episode rather than the uh, supposition, speculation, and total wild, wild ass theorizing that I will be doing next week. That's when the fun begins. Oh, pod friends, I have so many dark things to show you when we come back. Some of them you may know, others you will wish you never knew. Speaking of things you wish didn't happen, rate and review this show. It helps others find us, take a listen, and wish that they had never listened to it and you had never reviewed it.
If you like your murder porn goofy, kick us a buck on Patreon. It keeps the booze flowing and the puns punning. And do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will show up while you are making out with your girlfriend and tastefully look away because he doesn't want to invade your privacy. He's good like that. And so for me, Dave, for so long, you and me have been fighting each other for so long. And the feeling that I feel for you is more than strong, girl. Bledsoe, producer, take it from me. If you give a little more than you're asking for, your love will turn the key. Oh my God, are we doing the Bee Gees? Gavin and all the fictional brothers skip on this show, we want to say that like the number one song, July 31st, 1977, we, 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 just want to be your everything podcast. And we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or on Facebook as what the hell podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts